I'm Delaney Hall. I used to work with Third Coast. I'm here as a volunteer this year. Um, and we are very excited to have Amy O'Leary with us. Um, she's going to be presenting the sound and the blurry. Um, and just a little background, she's a news editor from the New York Times. Please turn off your cell phones. And Thanks. Um, just, just one little word of housekeeping for those of you just coming in. We are going to be looking at a lot visually, so the closer you are to the screen, the more you'll get out of the presentation. Yesterday we had some people sitting on the floor up front. That's absolutely fine, but don't feel like the, the tables in the back are maybe not the best place to, to watch this one, so um, fair warning. All right. So uh, the first thing I want to say is that this is just so lovely for me to be kind of among my people. Even though I work mostly in multimedia now at the New York Times, I consider myself a radio and audio person in my heart. And, um, and uh, part of what I want to do today is kind of take you through my journey from being a purely audio producer to a multimedia producer and some of the things I've learned outside of our craft in kind of the visual journalism and visual storytelling. Um, but, you know, uh, there's one thing I should make clear, you know, before, before I start is that every project that I work on at the Times is, is truly a collaboration. None of this work, even things I've been involved in, are not really my own. Um, I get to work on really cool stuff at the Times, you know, fancy interactives and, and crazy multimedia. But, um, you know, it, it really is always a big team effort. And, and what all this has taught me, even in kind of fancy elaborate projects, is that audio slideshows, which were kind of the first thing we started out doing, are really um, important as a transitional tool, as a building block, and kind of a foundational device to develop some different kinds of thinking outside of what you know, we all know and love how to do in, in audio. Um, now, sometimes this is frustrating, and sometimes it's really amazing, but I want to tell you now kind of one great secret, which should hopefully gladden your heart as, as it has gladdened mine, which is that for all these kinds of projects, whatever, whatever we're doing, audio is the foundation. It really does sort of like, <laughs> yay, I know, we should be so happy about that. And, you know, the photographers I've worked with over the last um, year and a half, or the last two or three years, they also come to agree to this kind of by the end of, of working in multimedia that they realize that there's something about kind of, you know, the linear quality of audio that you need to sort of nail that down before you can um, kind of get the rest of the pieces in place. So many multimedia projects are, are kind of a puzzle, and this was a recent one that we worked on in the last few weeks, which was an animation explaining a complicated uh, uh, transaction called securities lending um, on Wall Street. And we, you know, we struggled with this piece for about a month and, and how to uh, you know, make it fun and interesting and explain this complicated concept. But really, for this project, what made it work were basic audio skills. We grabbed the, most, uh, the best talker on the business desk, an editor, David Gillen, and we put him in a booth and we asked him a bunch of questions and just interviewed him straight up uh, about this in a really fun human way and then edited it down. And, and that became our script that then we gave over to the animator. And, and the audio process, was really foundational and kind of fundamental to doing, you know, even kind of, you know, for us, animation is a little bit cutting edge. We've only used it maybe four or five times in this way. Um, and, you know, without the fun, snappy audio edit, you end up with kind of flat, sad multimedia that can sometimes end up being, uh, you know, kind of drecky. Um, and while this idea, I think, hopefully plays great in this room, that audio is really important in the foundation, the trick that I found is getting people outside of this room to, to realize that too. And especially when it comes to reporters and traditional print reporters who I spend a lot of time working with. When I got to the New York Times about three and a half years ago, this was pretty much the state of audio recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, and no joke. And, and the first couple of weeks and months on the job, you know, 
I was dropped a lot of really bad audio on my desk and told to make audio slideshows with it because that was kind of all the rage in 2007. Um, and so I just want to play you a few glorious samples of what I was given to work with. So everything since then has been explosive and passionate. I don't think about what I'm doing, I just do it. This might have been one of the last interviews that Ray Bradbury would ever do, and it was recorded with a micro cassette recorder on the table. And, um, you know, really, people at the time, they didn't, at the times, didn't understand why this wasn't a good recording, because they could make out the words. So we had a lot of work to do, um, and we, didn't, we did not end up using that particular piece of tape on, on the website. That was a victory. But uh, <laughs> the first audio slideshow I had to make, um, I got 10 hours of this tape. Um, but now it's just like, when you walk out your door and all you see is a big trailer in front of you, you know, that's kind of depressing. What was even more depressing about this, this clip um, was the phone call that I got from the correspondent when I, I said, I don't think we can use this. Uh, she said, you know, Amy, do you think that maybe the problem is that, like, your standards are crazy high? And maybe you just need to, like, you know, because I can understand what she's saying. Um, so, you know, we had 10 hours of that. Uh, I think she set the recorder on an air conditioner. Um, <laughs> about 10 feet away from the subject. And, uh, yeah, I made an audio slideshow with this tape. Um, most fascinatingly, uh, you know, we do try to train our reporters before they go out and do audio, and uh, this clip is a little bit priceless, and I'll just, I'll just let you experience it and then explain it. All right, well, whenever you guys are ready, you can fire Okay. Away. Can I offer you anything other than one? Do you have no, I'm good. Thank you. Okay, let me just hit the power button. Just turn on the power. Um, this. Do you want to put this over here, or is it better over there? What, are, what do you want to did you hear what, what the President of the United States just said? Do you want to put this over here or is it better over there? And he's talking about the recorder. Okay? What do you think the reporter did in this situation? They are in the Oval Office, right? It's like sitting on those couches, right? And the First Lady is there. What do you think she said? Let's listen. Power button on this. Do you want to put this over here or is it better over there? What, are, what do you want? Oh, I think if I point these both towards you. I think that'll work pretty well. Oh no, she's off um, mic too. Mr. President. Uh, yeah. So, um, that was the state of where things were at about three and a half years ago when um, they hired both myself and Sarah Kramer, a former producer at StoryCorps, to come into the Times and bring, kind of elevate the level of audio craft there. And, you know, one of the things we, we found out right away was that people didn't really respect audio as a craft or as a skill or as something they should ever have to pay for. They're like, why would we ever hire an audio producer? We can just give the photographer a recorder, you know? I mean, that was really, that, and still is sometimes, you know, common thinking. Um, and as, you know, a, a lover and practitioner of audio craft, that was wounding. It was really difficult. Um, and while this sort of sounds crazy, I have to tell you, my radio friends and my brothers, my sisters, we are guilty of the same thing. Um, we've done it to photographers. And I want to share with you today six lessons that I've learned about multimedia and visual journalism and how to, not, to, to, to make it not suck. And to help me, because I am not a, a visual expert, 
Um, I have brought, sort of virtually brought some photographers and visual journalists from the Times with me. I, I did a few interviews with them before I came to help me out. And the first lesson, which you know, really comes out of having felt disrespected at the times when I started, um, comes down to this, which is just really respect. And you know, if it sounds a little bit harsh, I, you know, I want to say as easy it is for us to laugh at those bad audio clips, it's just as easy, easy to make fun of terrible visual journalism. And, um, and I think it's really important that when we're working in multimedia and working in collaboration, we really respect each other's craft. And just because it's something that we don't know how to do doesn't mean we can do it on the cheap or fast or, or just throw some photos into an audio, to a radio piece we've already produced and that should be fine. Um, I don't think that really respects the work and craft of, of photojournalists who care very much about their work and the way we care about audio. And in the course of my research for this talk, um, one of the things I found, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to call out the program that offended here, but uh, was a public radio show that, that had their, their radio story, and they made an audio slideshow with it, with photos entirely culled from Flickr. They were vacation photos that other people had taken, and this was a story about environmental damage. Um, I, I, so one of, the, one of my virtual uh, panelists here is Nancy Donaldson, and she's a visual multimedia editor. She's worked at the Washington Post and at the Times, and she shoots video and f photographs and does a lot of visual editing. And I told her about this, and she couldn't believe that anyone had even done that, and she was almost speechless in her answer. I would never approach, I don't think I would ever approach a multimedia piece trying to use other people's content in that way. When you're completely relying on someone else who, not only is it not your work, but it wasn't shot for the purpose of that piece. I didn't even know that this happened. <laughs> so she was a little surprised. Um, and to bridge this divide and to sort of heal this basic misunderstanding, there are two projects that I want to play for you first today that I think have really beautiful photo edits, but the, you'll, you'll notice something missing in the audio. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I, I'm guessing with, with this one you can tell what's missing. Um, but at the same time, rather than just thinking about what's missing in the audio, I want you to think about what you are getting from the visual component here and the, and the visual edit. Um, this was a centerpiece project. Uh, this was in, I think, late 2007. The Times did a, a major series on environmental damage in China. Um, and this piece uh, was called The World's Smokestack. <laughs>
So did you guys notice what was missing in the audio? <laughs> um, and and that I should say, you know, the, those photographs were shot by Chang Lee, who is amazing. And the photo editor, Megan Lurum, um, who we've worked with a lot and has probably done the most in terms of visually editing and multimedia as a photo editor, you know, she came up with this sequence. And this was really my first introduction to to working with, you know, a visual sequence. And there are things, you know, you notice, I feel like kind of in the beginning, you're kind of leaning into the piece and you're sort of taken through these scenes in day. And then kind of at the end, you're kind of almost like looking back on it. And, and I feel like there is an arc here, but it's not in a language that I'm used to. Um, and and this is still something that I'm, I'm trying to learn, but, but I thought it was done very well here. And also we were fortunate that Zoe Keating gave us permission to edit up her her beautiful music um, about 12 times before we fit it just right to the music, to the, to the slides. Now, and, and you know, so I also want to say for a minute, the snapshot view, we're going to be looking at these a lot. And I want you to sort of take a mental, mental picture of this view of like the full take of the photos. Because when you see good visual projects, you'll see good richness and variety in this view. When you see visual projects that don't quite measure up, it, they'll kind of all blur into one another. Um, and so that's sort of a good hallmark of a visual edit, but we're going to be seeing a lot of those. Now, um, the next step, of course, for an audio slideshow would be to get some actual sound in the piece, maybe some sound recorded on location. Um, and uh, this happened, uh, we had another piece coming out of Malaysia, and, and the photographer here, uh, you know, shot beautiful photos and, you know, didn't decide to record audio when he was there. We didn't talk to him before he did this. Um, and got a lot of, of, of sound, and we made a piece out of it, but clearly there were some challenges sound-wise. But again, pay attention to what the visual edit is doing, and this is only the first maybe, you know, 45 seconds of the, of the piece. Okay, so we've got some ambient sound now in a piece. <laughs> that was a step forward, um, that he took the recorder out, didn't do any interviews, so we had to use a lot of um, text slides to tell a story. But there was a lot to like here in, in the photo take. There was a great variety. You've got you know, close-ups, mediums, wide shots, some landscapes, some, you know, he's sort of telling the story visually, again, in a language that I don't think we're as accustomed to. And, um, in the same way that I think it's easy for us as audio producers to critique this audio and say, so he basically literally just recorded the sound of everything he shot. Um, there's not a lot of art there, you know, just to record all the different ambient, ambient sounds. Um, I have seen a lot of work that does exactly the same thing visually. Um, and so if there's one lesson today I want, to, I want you to take away from this, this talk, it's, it's that um, it, to sort of avoid the biggest sin that I've seen in visual multimedia, which is to, to please, don't be literal. Um, 
you know, we talk about audio as a visual medium, right? I think even in the opening session, Julie Shapiro mentioned that, and, you know, radio is your most visual medium. I think we've all heard that. And while that is awesome and a challenge and, and partly true, it's also partly a lie. Like, audio creates this, you have this amazing space, this blank stage in the viewer's imagination that you're populating with carefully chosen details, with sound, with, with um, you know, narration. And, and that's a great art and a great skill that we, we all work to develop. And we know how to, to do that for the viewer. But when you add in photos, all of that work is wasted because there is no stage anymore that they're imagining. And so that work that you've done to sort of populate it is now seems blunt and, and a little bit obvious. Um, I, I, I want to just observe this, and this is a little montage of examples from audio slideshows that I just found around the internet. Most of the, I think the majority of these were from radio websites that, that sort of forayed into doing audio slideshows. And you can just sort of see how this can play out. I have my own lazy boy chair that's comfortable for me that my wife wanted me to get out of the house, so now I have it here. We have a huge building here, which manure was stored in. We're in the middle of the countryside here, and there's a huge termite hill. I've decorated all my walls with uh, pictures of my wife and my son and just family pictures. I'm looking at a, a large hole that was left by the heavy equipment they brought in here to scoop up the manure. There's a little girl in a purple dress with dots and she looks as if she's collecting termites. <laughs> and in that hole is brown water, which is rainwater mixed with manure. Um, I call it manure tea. Yes, what we're looking at now is wooden seating, kind of wood chaise lounges that are set on the remnants of the old High Line train track. And, and wooden made uh, out of seemingly just right, two by four. Right. This ditch drains into a small tributary. And she adds a little termite to her little plastic bag. I also have a noise machine that drowns out a lot of the extraneous noises out there. It's kind of like a washing machine. Okay, <laughs> so some of these were, were maybe just not very strong audio slideshows to begin with, and literally some of them were images slapped onto a radio piece, which, which I think, if you're looking to, to sort of work in this form, that's a little bit tragic, and there are some missed opportunities. But even when the photos are really solid and professional and sort of well shot, an audio slideshow can miss the boat through, through sort of this kind of literalism. And I want to dig deeper into one of them, the guy in the Lazy Boy. Um, so I'm going to play the first half of that, and, and we'll look at it. Hi, my name is Todd Swenson. I uh, am a pilot for Alaska Airlines. When I'm down here, I live in a trailer. It's a 23-foot coachman trailer. I have my own lazy boy chair that's comfortable for me that my wife wanted me to get out of the house, so now I have it here. I've decorated all my walls with uh, pictures of my wife and my son and just family pictures. Some people would say the noise is a, is a big issue, but I, I don't even hear it anymore. And uh, I also have a noise machine that drowns out a lot of the extraneous noises out there. It's kind of like a washing machine. I live in the Fresno area, so when the company uh, has me on reserve, I, I can't stay at home, so I have to be down here. If I'm in my trailer and, and I'm watching TV or reading a book and, and the company calls me and says, we have a flight for you, from the time I hang up the phone, I can just stand up and start getting ready for my, my work by changing clothes, jumping out the door, getting on the bus and going. 
bus system runs about five to ten minutes. I can jump uh, out of my door from my trailer, walk about 20 feet, jump on the bus. Uh, it drops me off right at the terminal. This has worked out very, very well for me. All right, so there's there's another character that's the second half of that audio slideshow, but um, the uh, you know you know I look at this and well my my colleague Nancy had had a few thoughts on this um, I want to share that I can either look at those photos and make up a story myself and get the same thing out of the audio or I can close my eyes and imagine the exact same thing as what I'm seeing like there's no level of sophistication it's not asking me to do any work. If you do too much work for the viewer and show the sound machine and show the Lazy Boy show how big the truck is, the whole thing, it's just sort of like, it's too much. You're, you're, it's almost insulting because it's like dumbing it down so much that you're like, this is what it looks like when you get a phone call. This is what it looks like when you read a book, you know? Um, I think, you know, that you could really, you, I could look at that and not hear anything and tell you what happens. And I can listen to that and not see anything and walk away with the same thing. I think she makes a really good point. They're just duplicating each other. Um, and um, you can imagine how much more powerful a piece like this could be if instead of saying, I've got pictures of my wife and, and son taped up all around here, if he, talk, if he said instead, I really miss my wife. I only get to see her you know, once every couple of weeks, and it's been really hard on us to be apart so long. You could do something complementary with the audio that's not repeating what you're seeing in the visual edit, and that would make, I think, the piece, the piece richer, and also not make you feel like you're, you're being told what you're looking at. Um, this sort of style of, of kind of literal description of visuals is, a, is what I call the slide projector syndrome, right? <laughs> It is just talking over pictures saying, you know, there we were in Miami, there we were in Patagonia, you know. And, and those things have a reputation for being boring for a reason. Um, because, you know, you're just telling people what they're seeing. So how do we overcome this? Um, there, there are a number of ways, and we're going to go through those in, in, you know, most of the rest of the talk. And some of those can be through very kind of high artistic mean methods, or sometimes through very simple, subtle direction. Um, and we'll get to the high art in a minute, but I want to start with this really simple example. Um, this is an excerpt from an audio slideshow uh, where it was a, a, a health reporter at the Times, Denise Grady, and a, a brilliant freelance photographer, Beatrice DeGia, went to Tanzania to go to a hospital where, um, where doctors are doing fistula repair. And um, they didn't get any audio at all. And so, you know, I, I sat them down to interview them, essentially, as sources for the audio slideshow. Now, the trick is avoiding them describing the slides. So I was looking for something extra, for them to tell me something I couldn't see in the pictures. And this is just an excerpt. What struck me was how many of them had voices that were very childlike voices. And I thought, here are these women who've had these injuries from having babies, and some of them really are still kids themselves. And that is part of what goes into the risk of getting a fistula. One of them was so tiny and had such kind of a small voice. You know who I'm thinking about, Janeth. Janeth, yeah. That when I first met her, I thought, my god, she must be about 15. Um, but she turned out to be 30. I mean, some of those women have been going through this for years and years, and in 30 minutes, gone, erased. I was, that just felt just incredible. Denise uh, showed me um, those two girls, and she's like, look, look. 
two teenage girls who both were pregnant at 15 or 16. You know, their babies died. They have these horrible injuries. And they were just, you know, tickling each other on the bed and just really having fun and laughing. And it was such a breeze of fresh air just to have this moment happening in the ward. So th this is the simplest, right? It's just saying something besides what's in the picture. Um, and, and it, you know, the, this concept of not being literal uh, will, will be in play for all the rest of the examples going forward, and we're just going to keep deepening that concept. But even when you're just adding narration, and I think this is important, you can still add something that's, that's new rather than be reductive and kind of repeat the imagery. So, you know, how do we do this? Um, there are lots of ways, and, you know, you can instead be abstract. You can be giving context or sharing a secret or being emotional or being suggestive or hopefully being interesting. And um, this is Damon Winter, and he makes anything we do interesting because he's a brilliant photographer. Um, he won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for photography for his coverage of Obama. And he's, you know, transitioning into working in multimedia more and more. And I asked him a little bit about this and what is different in working in this format than he has traditionally, his traditional practice of working for print photography in the paper. It's, I mean, I, I think, I think, we as photographers were have always been trained in the past, I mean I think before the advent of multimedia is like you're looking for that decisive moment and you're looking for that one photo that encapsulates, you know, as much information, tells the story as best you can in that one single image that, you know, in the past would have run on the front page. And when you're doing this multimedia, you really have to you have to think uh, about the marriage of, of visuals and audio, um, how your photos play in a timeline, um, you know, varying angles, uh, how you fill that time with images. Uh, there are so many other things that you have to contemplate when you're shooting for a multimedia piece and when you know it's going to be a multimedia piece. So that's some of uh, Damon's work first for print and then in, in uh, a multimedia context. Um, which this, his point really brings me to, to my third lesson, which is, is about details. Um, details are what make the difference between um, a great and varied audio slideshow and one that, that can feel a little bit mushy or a little bit rote. Um, and he, this is an example from the very first audio slideshow that Damon worked on. Um, they told me about an hour before he left the building to get on a plane to Alaska that they wanted him to do some audio slideshows while he was out there. He never done audio before, so for 30 minutes I trained him on how to record, and uh, as he was in flight, I sent him a list of questions for his two stories. And he did a really great job. I mean, his, his images are always fantastic. Um, but this is one sequence um, that, you know, he said he never would have shot something like this for the paper. Like, this, th this was part of a, um, a, a tour of this man's kitchen and home and how much his family really depends on whale meat to uh, as part of you know their their everyday diet and this was a story about um, uh, increased oil drilling on the north slope of Alaska and and it was sort of a, a, a conflict as to whether or not that would be that would be happening and um, you know again he said he would never have shot something like this but you know as he was going on this guided tour of this guy's freezer he realized he you know we would need to have these details that would have no place kind of in the paper. Um, and, and Nancy Donaldson, again, um, has observed and coached many photographers working out this problem, and this is what she had to say. Details, 
Details and transitions are the two things that are not natural to print photographers because they're never going to be on A1. They're never going to be probably even in the paper. I mean, occasionally there are details, but that's not really the shot that they're going for. Um, and they're so crucial to doing multimedia because it's the only way to sort of pull, push and pull people through things. And you can put a detail over almost any bite of ambient or any uh, quote or any piece of narration. So they're very helpful. And um, one of the things you find as you start working in, in multimedia is that every piece is like a puzzle. You, you have, you know, limited material and you're trying to sort of make it all work together and details are kind of the smoothing, uh, you know, the, the sort of smooth kind of paste you can, you can add. It's a spackle to kind of just make everything work a little bit better. One of the photographers that has probably done uh, the most in this medium is Todd Heisler. Um, and uh, so Todd Heisler, who um, was also, is also, uh, God, we're lucky, he's um, uh, won the Pulitzer for his work at the Rocky Mountain News on, on a piece called Final Salute. Um, and he was also uh, details. The, whoops, sorry, he was also the photographer on One in Eight Million, which is a, a project I know many people have seen. Um, if you haven't, I encourage you to check it out. Um, this was a project started by two of my colleagues, Sarah Kramer, who uh, came from StoryCorps, and Lexi Mainland, who uh, is a web producer on our Metro Desk. Um, it ran through all of 2009. I think there's in, in excess of you know 54 portraits of New Yorkers. Um, Todd shot every single one of them. There was one a week, and. Um, and, and also the photo editor who worked on, on the China piece and some of the other pieces, Megan Lurum, uh, was instrumental in sort of helping call and select the images. So this is Todd. And I asked Todd about sort of what he learned through the course of, of One in Eight Million. I mean, doing One in Eight Million has certainly made me look more. It's made me look for more details. Um, I find normally I would just go for the moments. Um, now I'm starting to look for, for more texture and more things, you know, that go away from the moments. Um, and, and a lot of times they'll get published in the paper. So, you know, I feel like it's made me a better photographer. Um, and, you know, now I start thinking what I would do with one in eight million because sometimes the opportunities weren't always as rich as others. So, you know, before I would leave the subject, I would just kind of stop and, like, look around the room, do, like, a 360-degree scan of, like, any detail I could, I could find or just something, something different. Because I knew, you know, we had to, we had to cover so much. Um, my favorite piece in the series, and, and I think it turns out it's Todd's, too, is a piece called The Walker, which I'm going to play for you now. I don't have walking shoes. I never owned sneakers in my life. I walk in my boots, in cowboy boots or motorcycle boots. I never get tired. I, I could be out walking for 14, 15 hours and I don't get tired. It's different to walk here than it is to walk in the country. Last summer, I was shopping for a, a truck and I found one in Pennsylvania. So. I figured, you know, I'm going to take a bus overnight, I'll get out really early, and I thought, oh, you know, if, if I can walk, I could easily do 20 miles a day in the city. I, I got out, and I started walking, and there was nothing, just fields, beets, <laughs> and cornfields, and uh, five miles into my walk, I sat down, I actually laid down in the middle of a beet field, and I called a taxi to come and pick me up. 
And I was, I was thinking, you know, I don't feel it in the city. I don't walk fast. I don't walk slow. I'm, I walk at my own speed. I have to keep moving. If I'm not moving, my mind isn't moving much either. I go through emotions. Like, I have so many. I'm, I'm happy. It's like a, a swing. Sometimes I'm very sad, frustrated, and irritated. And I think about everything. That If I don't walk, I can't think. So if I'm not in the mood to bump into people and just be around them, I, I would go outside the crowds. I can find a street that has nobody on it. It could be in the middle of the biggest rush hour ever, and there's one street in New York City that has nobody on it. I don't think I walk the same street every day. I turn when the light changes. So if I see a light change, I don't wait to just take a street. I notice buildings. And when you actually look up, it's so amazing. There's details in the buildings that I've never seen, I've never paid attention to. And lately, I, I, that's what I do. I feel like a tourist a lot of the times. You know, I'm just staring up the sky. So I notice buildings, I notice people, and the quiet the noise. It's all here. Different times, different places. That's what I love, I think. Um, so I really love, love this piece for a lot of things that, that it did, but, but I think it's, uh, it's more interesting if Todd talks about the choices he made and the choices they made. So here he is. There's no ambient sound in that. And you think you're, you're doing a, a piece about the street and you don't hear it. That's actually what I like about it, because it's so, um, so internal. We also did some other things in terms of um, content. So normally you would say, oh, I walked in the country. You know, people are reminiscing. Well, we're not going to the country with her. So what we did is we edited the complete opposite of, of rural, and we went for like one of the most urbanized scenes that she walked through. Just to kind of play that off each off each other, and, and we did that a lot in a lot of the pieces where you know we would kind of make a hard left turn from from the audio, just to be obvious about it. And and that seems counter to a lot of people's instincts. I think when they're starting out. Yeah, totally. And and I I've never really liked pieces that were so on point in terms of like. I'm a carpenter, and I use my hammer, and then you hear the hammering, and you see the hammer. You know. I mean, sometimes you have to do that, but I, I'd like to avoid that. I mean, we don't want to, we, we can't answer a lot of questions, but we also have to ask questions with these as well. And you want to leave a little mystery to pieces. My favorite pieces have a little mystery to them. I think that's a great point. I, I just love that he thinks that way, and, and we all get to work together. Cause <laughs> um, but... To really tactically do this, to actually you know, be able to bring this much detail and variety and to not be literal and to be artful requires uh, something very specific. And this brings me to lesson four, which is more photos. You need more photos than you think. You need more photos than you're probably using, than you're probably shooting, than you're probably editing down to. So to go to the flip side for a minute, when I started training folks in audio at the Times, um, I, would have the, I would train the reporter on how to record, and then I would train them on how to interview for, for audio and how to not interrupt. And then they'd say, so uh, about how long, you know, these, these slideshow things are like three minutes, about how long should I be uh, recording the audio for, like what, 10 minutes? And I would like, no, not exactly. 
and then they would say, well, how long do you record for? And I was like, well, sometimes for, you know, two or three hours, sometimes for five hours. It just depends on, you know, the person in the story. And their jaw would drop, and they'd be like, oh, my God, I'm never doing that. That's insane. How could you, how could you need to record so much audio for what's just a three-minute piece, right? Now, hopefully all of us in this room know why we do that. Um, but it's exactly the same for photography. And... Um, I think there are two very simple ways for an audio slideshow to fail. And one is too much audio, that it means your piece is too long, and it requires more photos than is possible to hold up the piece. And, and two is too few photos. Now, now, both of these are hopefully solved by having more photos. I asked Todd Heisler how many photos he typically shot for one in eight million. I mean, th these were all three minutes. And I would say, on the average, depending on how complicated the, or complex the storyline was, I would shoot anywhere from three, three, four hundred images to a thousand images. If I spent the day with somebody, I would shoot a thousand pictures. Um, the edits would probably get down to about fifty pictures, and and then the pieces, the average is probably like twenty, twenty to thirty images for a for a three minute piece. Um, the reason we went down to about fifty pictures is because when you start putting these together, it's like a it's like a house of cards. And so you start building these things and you realize, okay, if you take one out, you need to have other options. Because um, even when you listen to the audio first, the way we did, and had that in your mind when you were going out shooting, you still just don't know where you're going to end up. And so you have to be open to serendipity. So these are some of the, the full take of the 800 and I think six photos that were in the walker. Um, now, on the other end of the spectrum, and this is where we made some really bad audio slideshows in the beginning at the time, so it was a piece like this, and I'm, I'm going to spare you the actual piece. It's, it's phoner audio that has nothing to do with the photos. This was a piece about a solar-powered house, and the guy talks on the phone about a dinner party he had where people came dressed in too warm clothes because they didn't think his house would be warm enough. But this was every single photo that we got back from the photographer. We used every single one. And that's just a huge mistake. And it's kind of an unqualified disaster. If you look, there are four images just of the house. And these were shot for the paper. Quite clearly, when I see something like this now, I'm like, oh, of course. This is like the take for the newspaper. And you know, what are you getting from each of those photos? You're getting repetition. Um, you're not getting much layer to the story. The, the photos are used as filler, and, and that's always a disappointment. Now, a lot has changed in the years, like even in the last three years in this medium, and I think the era of kind of experimentation and people just throwing stuff to the wall and seeing what sticks is, is coming to an end, which is good. Um, even on our site, you'll see a lot less work in, in audio slideshows, and, but hopefully what you see will be better. Um, which led me to, re to revisit a piece that I think a lot of, of people in the audio world were familiar with um, in 2007. Transom put up uh, this, this great piece, Final Sale, and I, I remember at the time I really liked it. I, I went back and I looked and I left a comment that how much I liked this piece at the time and, and I really liked the audio. And, and looking back at it now and sort of checking in on it now, um, it's showed me a lot about how my own eye has shifted. And when I watched it again, it didn't nearly hold my attention in the same way it did in 2007. And I think a, a, a lot of that has some, something to do with the numbers behind the number of photographs involved in the piece. Um, and so we're going to watch a, a, a clip, about a two-minute clip, and then I'm going to show you the, the full photo take, and we'll talk about it. I'm Winthrop Sherwin from West Groton, and I run the little uh, country store in the square. One more day every day. The story of my life runs for about a half a mile. 
That's it. <laughs> I came in to uh, work in this store in 1937. So this year I've been here 70 years. And I think it's about time for me to retire and have a little relaxation. I couldn't get around here without this push catch, you know. So it takes me a little slower to open up. I was born in West Groton. I'm a native. And I'm one of 11 children. Uh, we often refer to it as a number instead of a name. So I was number nine. I'm the oldest living one now, and I have a brother and sister that's still alive. Here she comes. My name is Helen. My nickname is Sis, and I'm Winnie's sister. I came in the store in 1965. She's pretty faithful. She don't get here as early as I do, of course, but she's always here. You have enough money. You know how much it comes to without me figuring it out? Uh, how much is it? $25. I'm great for kids. I don't have any. And I never was married. Correct. Right on. But you live here in West Groton, too? No, I have no children, but I always like the kids, and the kids like to come in here. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was, that was about two minutes of that piece. Now, I think at two minutes, it's kind of working. Um, but... The piece goes on for another four minutes and 30 seconds. And at, at a full six minutes and 30 seconds, it, it starts to feel long. And partly, I think, because uh, again, while the audio is, is quite well crafted, um, the photo edit doesn't take you much beyond what you just saw in, in those first two minutes. And, and again, as I said, when you look at a, at a broad take like this, um, you know, the photo's kind of mushed together. There's a lot of um, what I would call medium shots in the piece uh, that are kind of all kind of at the same you know, the same kind of angle perspective, um, the same kind of lighting. They all have very similar lighting. Um, and it uses a lot of portraits to carry the weight of what the guy is saying, right? So there are, you know, there are a number of, you know, even some that are, they're nearly identical um, when he's talking about, you know, a memory or something, for example. Now, at the time, back in 2007, I wrote and I asked uh, Neil Manchel and Samantha Brown about this piece on Transom, and I asked them how many photos they shot at the time, thinking someday I would give this talk at Third Coast. Um, and he wrote, I shot about 700 photos, and that's the equivalent of, of about 20 rolls of 35 millimeter film. This was edited to about 300 keepers. The first run through gave us a slideshow with about 75 images, which interestingly enough works out to the math that we're about to get to if you were gonna do a six and a half minute piece. But it was way too busy and much too difficult to watch while listening to the spoken words and making sense out of them. The final pieces are in half the number of photos, plus some black slides that Sam put in to give it some breathing room and allow the viewer to keep up with the audio. So kind of breaking this down, okay, that was six minutes, 30 seconds long, comes into 390 seconds, about 36 photos, which comes down to more than 10 seconds per photo. That turns out to be a little bit long, first of all, um, per photo. Kind of where a standard or has converged, and again, f anyone should feel free to argue with me about any aesthetic sort of rules or guidelines that, that I toss out, because you know, it's all art, right? Um, Generally, though, in audio slideshows, more between four and seven seconds is, is a little bit more standard. So this sort of clocked in a little bit long per photo. Um, and, and 
all those photos have to be both um, varied and interesting. And that's just hard to do 72 photos that are all like really varied and interesting in that, that one location. I mean, I think it would take a really tremendous, I, I don't even know who could pull that off. Um, and, and it's this balance between too many and, and too few, which, and what the brain can absorb. And I think we're all sort of struggling to work that out. Um, Todd Heisler had an interesting thought about this that, that I thought was insightful. Um, oh wait, no, not yet. <laughs> so sorry, I just wanted to um, before we get to Todd's thought. Um, if you if you brought this down to five seconds per photo, you'd you'd end up with 72 photos, which is what Neil said they started with in that uh, initial take. Um, again, and that's that's hard to pull off, I think, um, with so many. So so what Todd said was this. I think some of the pieces that have more pictures allow you to listen to the audio better. I don't know why. I just think you're not distracted by the one photograph moving or something. Now, th this was an interesting nugget that popped up in our conversation. And, and this concept has not been explored a lot, but I think there's something to it. Um, it's almost like meditation and, and how you tr one tries to, tr to, to train their mind to control itself when it begins to wander. I think, I think with the visual medium, we're trying to do the same thing. We're um, trying to sort of control and channel people's focus. And if the image stays up for a really long time, I think that focus starts to wander. And, and it requires even more of the piece to carry us through. So there's something to that like changing sort of rhythmic flow of the kind of the visual stream of information that I think can, can keep viewers where you're trying to, to put them in a piece. Um, and this leads me to, uh, to my second to last point. And this is, this is a concept I struggle with every day. I, this is the thing I care about the most. I try and solve every day in my work, and I sweat blood to fight. But it's the modern attention span. Um, the main difference between working in audio and working in multimedia is the delivery mechanism, um, or working radio, rather. It is, you know, on radio you learn how to, like, if somebody's got the radio on their car or while they're doing the dishes, you're learning how to sort of grab their attention and sort of pop up out of being background noise to becoming foreground noise with a number of tricks that, that we all employ. In multimedia, it is so much harder, um, I think, to get your audience's attention. Um, you're competing with so much. You're competing with people's email, with their Facebook, with their chat, with like, you know, funny cat videos on YouTube. It's, it's an uphill battle. And it's different than like grabbing them by the ear or over the air. Um, and I think this makes beginnings vitally important. It makes promos and teasers and all the text that comes before you click on something vitally important. Um, one of the best lessons that, that Ira Glass ever taught me was uh, when I was an intern, and he, he sat me down and he said, kid, I'm giving you your own radio show. It's very important. It's a 30-second radio show. It's called The Promo. And more people will hear your radio show than will ever hear my radio show. And people will decide to listen to, your, to my radio show based on your radio show, which was incredibly inspiring. But I think in multimedia, the promo is even more important. Um, and so is the beginning, because uh, we found some startling statistics about how much time people actually spend with these things that, that um, are a little bit scary. And that's why I think beginnings really matter. So next I want to play you two pieces that um, are working with the same kinds of challenges. Both of these pieces feature um, single, older men at the end of their lives. Um, these men don't get out much, so they're kind of just in one room or one house. Um, the stories are a little bit sad, um, and y y you would think they'd be really difficult to photograph because they're both talking about things that happened in the past. 
but they work really differently. And um, I think the, the second example is, is much stronger, and the second example has, has a beginning that I think totally nails this problem. Um, but first I wanna play the first example, which is much more typical of what you see online. And this is from the BBC, and it's in uh, a feature package about the debate over assisted suicide. I met Elizabeth at the Hammersmith Pally in London in late 59. It was my 27th birthday precisely when we met, and she was a year older. She had a dazzling smile, a bit like Greer Garson. Feelings developed quite rapidly. We fell in love and married, and then uh, in 1977 she began to develop symptoms and it turned out to be Huntington's disease. Her balance became bad. She had the characteristic stumbling walk and her memory was affected. She had difficulty gathering her thoughts and it's just as if she'd had the higher reaches, if you like, of her mind taken away. When she learned what she had, she decided that she would end it all. Because she knew it was hopeless that she was going to die anyway and die in a very unpleasant manner over a protracted period of time. She went to the Voluntary Euthanasia Society, which was at that time called Exit, and they agreed. Okay. Um, the, the piece will continue, but you see there are a lot of things that we've already talked about. The, 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 there's not a lot of variety here, I think. Um, I, while I really liked sort of how he used the slide in that one way, later it becomes clear this is sort of a slide shown, like why are we looking at detail of the projector? It doesn't really translate so much to the story, but it's a hard story to do, right? Like this is, you know, the woman is not there and he's talking about the past and it's a real challenge. Um, and it's also hard material, you know, it's, it's emotional material. Um, there is a, a photographer working uh, mostly at the LA Times whose name I want you all to write down because I think she has nailed something fundamental about this kind of work and is, is maybe light years ahead of the rest of us. Her name is Liz Balin. And every time she does a piece of work, I'm kind of blown away. And um, she, she attacked sort of a very similar subject in a really different way. And everything from the choices, the details, but especially the opening I'll just let I'm, I'm not, I can't even comment. It's, she's just amazing. Um, B-A-Y-L-A-N. I was saddened today by something that you two could not have known. And for a moment uh, startled at the deterioration of the statue. I hadn't seen it in months and all of a sudden it's falling apart. And it's a paradigm of me <laughs> on that old statue. I'm 90, I don't think I'll be 95, 94, I don't think I'll be 91. I've expressed disappointment at arriving alive at the ER where I sobbed, really, with disappointment. Oh, damn. It was the perfect time to die. And I believe enough already. <laughs> a Jew is a person who takes umbrage at an anti-Semitic remark. 
That's the kind of Jew I am. Who recognizes that there's a great urge to somehow live on, to survive yourself, and you make up a, a hereafter and a deity and a, a whole panoply of gods and sub-gods and saints and hall of fame and it's such gratuitous bullshit. <laughs> After Sputnik, we looked around the heavens and what we found was detritus and debris and junk floating in space. There's no spirit or soul. I will be dead. Get that through your thick head. I'll be dead. And I live, in quotation marks, in my children, in my DNA, in my books, in my reputation. It's as simple as that. I think there's so much about that piece uh, uh, that is not only, um, I don't know, just groundbreaking and, and unusual and unexpected and wonderful. Um, everything from just how it begins with, with the strong audio of his, his breathing to the choices visually, I think, I mean, they're amazing. It's every, uh, you know, everything from the subtle, subtle details of the tie, you know, we're talking about his reputation the empty chairs and the sky picture with the weather vane when he's talking about God. Um, the unplugged cord is like my favorite image in the slideshow. Um, it's incredibly powerful. And, um, and you know, I, I, think, I think she just makes incredibly strong choices and, and is really doing something, you know, beyond what we think of as a typical audio slideshow. It's, it's very artful. Um, and this is, again, a really hard subject. I mean, how do you illustrate this, right? But she found a way. Um, and it gives me great hope for, for the most challenging of projects. Um, all of this is, I think, you know, even more important. I mentioned some disturbing facts and trying to get people's attention. Make this stuff worth watching. Um, and, and to shift gears just for a minute emotionally, um, one of the most disturbing facts is my cousin Riley. <laughs> Riley likes baseball, and um, we sent him an audio slideshow about baseball, and, and Uncle Mike, my Uncle Mike, uh, Riley's dad, wrote me this. I sent Riley your slideshow about the minor league player, and he watched it for a minute or two and then quit. I asked why, and he said if it had been video, he might have watched it all the way through. So uh, the takeaway here is that, that you know, young people are a future, and many of them don't care. And I think we have to work extra hard um, at capturing people's attention for this reason and, and making sure that our work is not only solid but starts strong. And that's important because of, of the second point, which um, this just came out in the last month. But uh, there's a study that after watching an online video for a full minute, 44.1% of viewers will have clicked away. And most of that loss occurs within the first 10 seconds during which you know, nearly 20% of a video's audience defects. Now, I think this is probably exactly the same, if not more so, for audio slideshows, um, and especially audio slideshows that don't start strong. Um, you know, at, at the times, we get a lot of email from, from folks. And when they watch an audio slideshow, they'll often write back, oh, that was a great video. You know, there's confusion about the mediums. So I think, I think this certainly applies. But it's also really heartbreaking to watch in person. 
Um, we have a user testing facility at the times where we bring in users and we record them interacting with the site. And you know we have experts who sort of track their behavior. And I've seen people look at the time stamp, like how long is this thing at the beginning, and just not even bother because they think it's too long. And um, that threshold seems to be anything with three minutes or more seems to be something that most people don't feel is going to be worth their time. Like 2.59 seems a little like magical. I mean, you could have the same slide show up with, at 2.59 and 3.01, and I think many more people would watch 2.59. Um, that may be disturbing, but it's also just a fact of life in my world that we try and work with by making things as compelling as possible. We, we have to work harder, we have to work smarter, we have to use teasers, promos, emotion. And you know, a trick I tell um, starting radio producers if they're stuck on structure is to always start with your best piece of tape and then just work backwards and figure out the rest of the story. Well, now in multimedia, I just say start with your best piece of tape all the time because it's your best chance to hook somebody into your piece. And they might not be there for your best piece of tape if you don't put it right up front. Um, it changes the way we work. But I think that um, you know, by keeping this in mind, and, and hopefully, again, if your best tape is emotional tape, and your, your images can sort of match this power. And this is my final point, and, um, is that your images should be working not to really explain what's going on, but just like we saw in that last piece, by illustrating the emotion in the piece, right? The, um, you know, the unplugged cord is illustrating a certain emotion. Um, you know, the empty chairs are illustrating a certain emotion. And it's, not, it's the flip side of being literal. If you're not gonna be literal, like, this is how you do it. Um, and and it's, more, it's more of an artful challenge, and it's more interesting to me. And, and so um, there, are, there are three last things I want to play you, and all of these, do, I think, do this very well. Um, the first example is a fascinating case study, and uh, I encourage you to look at the other two slideshows at some point in this case study. But this is, this is a fast uh, turnaround breaking news situation um, when Benazir Bhutto was assassinated. John Moore from Getty Images was kind of the only Western photographer on the scene, and um, everyone, every news organization had his photos. And three news organizations called him up and got an audio track about what happened that day. Um, it was The Guardian, newspaper, CNN, and The New York Times. The three audio slideshows have essentially, you know, identical source material, but their, out their outcomes were really, really different. And, um, you know, there's a lot here, and, and, I, and, you know, I'm proud to say I had nothing to do with this piece. Um, Thomas Lynn and Patrick Woody produced it at the Times. Um, but I, I was really proud that I think they, they, they did by far the, the best job with this material um, by really illustrating, using the images not just to say what the news facts were that this woman was assassinated, but to illustrate the emotion of the scene. So let's watch that. With Benazir Bhutto, she was always known for her white headscarf. And I thought um, showing the headscarf uh, from behind and with all people um, in the background, would be, it would be evident who it was. She was very emotional um, during this campaign rally. Um, it was all in Urdu, and I, I don't speak Urdu, uh, so I asked one of my Pakistani uh, colleagues, um, uh, what she was talking about, and he said, well, she's talking about the, the need to fight terrorism, the need to fight al-Qaeda, um, and, and she was doing it with uh, such passion. I said, well, does she always yell um, into the microphone during these demos? And, uh, and he said, no, this is very rare. She's very much into it. And when she left, at the end of the rally, uh, the crowd flocked out to the street and surrounded her car and, and danced and wanted to touch her and, uh, and it was very emotional, and that's maybe one of the reasons why um, 
she took a chance and decided to stand up uh, through that sunroof um, despite uh, clear and present danger. It was dusk. The light was going fast. Um, um, the car was moving slowly, but the crowd was jostling. Uh, and, um, and that was maybe the last uh, image, um, certainly the last image I took before she died. Um, the car surged forward a little bit. Um, I saw through the corner of my eye um, her through the sunroof waving, and, um, and a couple shots were fired, and she went down. She fell down through the sunroof into the car. And right at that moment, then I raised my camera and started, um, started shooting with the, uh, the high-speed motor drive. And, um, and that's, why, that's why you see the blast uh, in some of the frames, um, the, fire, um, the fireball and the, the people running. Um, none of it, of course, in focus, because all I did was raise my camera and start shooting. This man was one of her supporters. Um, there were many people that came out to greet her. Some of them were close to the vehicle. Others were further away and were not injured. Um, he, was, he was not injured, um, but he immediately appeared on the scene, um, walking through the crowd in a state of shock. Uh, his emotion was just, uh, was just overwhelming. In the, in the last couple of weeks, she has been having um, campaign rallies, but they've been very small and they've been on the spur of the moment um, so that, um, so that would-be attackers would not have time to, to prepare. And this one was, was announced way in advance. We knew a week ago that, that, that she was going to have this, um, this campaign rally in this place on this day. And, and so clearly it was, uh, it was a dangerous situation. I personally tried to stay clear of the areas where they were doing the body searches uh, for the supporters going into the into the um, into the grounds for the for the rally um, because I thought that's where a bomber might set set, set off uh, his or her charge um, but as it turned out they uh, they planned much better um, they they knew their target they they wanted to get her and they did from Raul Pindi this is John Moore from Getty Images um so what is really different about this versus the other two that were produced with this material is that, um, first of all, I mean, there's use of, of, of detail images like the white head scarf. That doesn't really appear so much in the other shots. It doesn't make sense. Because what both The Guardian and CNN did was a straight kind of news, inverted pyramid style. Benazir Bhutto was assassinated. And they showed uh, many, there were many more graphic pictures of, of you know, people who'd been wounded and killed in, in the other two slideshows. It was it was much you didn't you didn't get the story about her emotion and we weren't sort of illustrating you know that piece with the the emotional you know images of the women her supporters and um, and I think this just worked better for a number of reasons and and it, you know as as kind of the first point I made in the talk the audio came first here that was laid down first and then they decided how to do the photo edit but the photo edit was really illustrating kind of the emotional the emotional places that John was talking about having witnessed um, the next piece I want to play for you. Uh, and and all, all three of these pieces, I think, demonstrate you know everything we've we've talked about so far today, is is a piece from Haiti uh, that Todd Heisler shot and did most of the audio recording for. 
Um, this piece, <laughs> when we first got in, we got this beautiful script from Simone Romero, our, our correspondent. Um, he just he just wrote this lovely thing, and we were looking at it going, this is great what he wrote, but man, we have no pictures for the first half of this audio slideshow. You know, and you'll see in the first half of this, um, we used rather abstract photos to illustrate this kind of, you know, he, he was talking about his driver and his translator, and we didn't know pictures of them, and we were like, oh man, but it's so good, are we going to have to kill this? And instead, you know, our, our photo editors, you know, sort of, you know, marched us properly, you know, to, to the photo edit and, and showed us how you could illustrate kind of the emotion in, in this lovely story that Simone had to tell without being, without, certainly without being literal. And then it, gets, it turns more traditional, which is also interesting. I've been in Haiti twice since the January earthquake. My driver, Mano, and my translator, Christian, have guided me through the streets of Port-au-Prince into tent camps, slums, trash dumps, hospitals, and everywhere else. It was in the car with them where I first heard this. This is Beken. I started asking Mano and Christian about the songs. They said Beken was singing about Haiti's suffering. Beken is what Haitians call a troubadour, a solo artist with a guitar who sings directly to their audience. As I saw such suffering on a massive scale all around me, I also found Beken's haunting songs about loss, seduction, and the yearning for a better future therapeutic. As I interviewed other Haitians, I realized that many of them were also listening to Beckin's music. I found some of his CDs for sale by street vendors who made bootleg versions for a buck thirty apiece. Some of them had sold out of his songs completely. I wanted to find Beckin and talk to him about this. When we found him, I was shocked. He was living in a tent camp in Place Saint-Pierre, one of the most squalid communities of displaced people in the earthquake. His home had been partially destroyed. He was chain-smoking and clearly under a lot of stress. Beken also faced the additional challenge of being handicapped after losing his leg in a car accident when he was a child. Mr. Beken, c'est une musique. Et l'aime d'ap composer, l'aime d'ap traverser un impasse. Beken Misery is a song that I wrote when I was going through a very, very difficult impasse. That's when I say. This misery, it's odd to get me. If I don't scream, I will choke. Beken hadn't composed anything since the earthquake. Doing so when the pain was so fresh from the disaster, he said, was too overwhelming. I asked him if he would be willing to play a few songs for us. He took us to a small restaurant in Pechonville where he played in the past. The owner set up a chair for him and his guitar. He began hesitatingly at first. But after smoking a cigarette and sipping a prestige beer, he began playing favorites like Emiliacion and Fang Sekajou. Beken got into the rhythm and so did his audience. Some in the restaurant began singing along with him. I 
I then witnessed something I hadn't seen in Haiti since arriving the day after the earthquake. People in the restaurant were having fun. They were drinking beer and eating goat head soup. For a while, they forgot the wrecked city around them. Pekin himself also smiled that night. He said then that maybe now he could write a new song. For the New York Times, in Port-au-Prince, this is Simon Romero. So that piece was uh, Todd Eisler from learned a lot doing one in eight million and knew how to get all the right stuff in the field, which was great for the audio. Um, but looking at and, and it was produced by Jeff Delvisio, um, our foreign producer. Um, looking at this, though, you see that the, the beginning was was really abstract. We didn't have anything kind of literal to illustrate it with, and uh, you know, but it worked sort of to illustrate the emotion when they talked about you know their hope for the future. You have the man lifting the baby up, um, you know, and, and just sort of seeing the wrecked city. Um, I, I think it worked very well. And then it goes into more of a traditional, you know, sort of audio slash where you're seeing a scene. And Todd uh, talked about, you know, that he, you know, you have this limited time and how do you get that variety? It's like you, you shoot from every angle. You, you know, you try and, and uh, you know, get him, you know, close-ups, detail, you know, wide shots, the crowd reaction, all stuff he never would have shot for the paper because he knew that we were going to tell the story in a full scene. Um, the last piece I want to play you uh, I think also sort of brings all of this together. It's another piece by Liz Balin, and um, I, I love it when people tackle hard or cliche subjects and just pull it off beautifully or unexpectedly. And when I look, and you can like go look at the SoundSlides website. SoundSlides is, is the software a lot of people use to put audio slideshows together, and there's a forum where people post new work. And you know the work is really mixed. A lot of it's a beginner work. Um, but you will see a ton of beginners go after uh, the subject of, and uh, you know, as their first documentary subject, they'll find someone who's disabled or struggling with an addiction. And you know, I wondered, I've wondered why that is. And I, I you know, I think a lot of it is because uh, there's there's an access. It's easy to access someone who's sort of in this condition all the time. You can kind of go anytime, and they're kind of always in that state. It's not something you have to schedule or plan around, or is is connected to the news. Or sort of you can leisurely work in that way. And I've certainly seen a number of audio slideshows and newspaper sites about um, people struggle with obesity. And again, Liz Balin just I feel like nailed this topic in a way that I hadn't seen before. And and it's really remarkable work. It's the last piece I want to play, and then we'll take questions. Um, the one, the one fact you should know before this, and this is in the text on the website before you see this piece, um, and it just helps understand the piece. It, it says, from personality to profile, Billy Gordon has never denied his girth, using it to disarm and entertain, creating a theatrical comedy career in drag before pursuing, pursuing research in neuroscience. But his size makes everything more complicated, even diagnosing his ailments. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. You know, that was my very first thought was, oh, happy day. <coughs> Emily, hi, how are you, barrister to the stars? <laughs> I just got off the scale. 
I weigh 539. Yeah, the last time I was on the scale, I was at 569, which is a few days ago, and I, I am so happy. <laughs> it means that I can walk on the beach with my husband. It means that um, I can go back to UCLA and do work. It means I can. It means that I can have my MRI. It means that I'm not going to die. That's what it means, you know. Because I can do this. I do feel sometimes like I have the weight of the world on my shoulder. And because um, cause it's hard to be this big, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. When it comes to being morbidly obese, people are very insensitive and they're very rude. Going, oh, 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 look at the fat man, look at the fat man, look at the fat man. People think that it's a character flaw. People think, oh, you can do something about it and, um, and you should, but you don't care about yourself. So why should we give you any respect, you know? But the reality is, is that nobody would be this size if they could do something about it. This disease has taken enough of my life away, you know. I'm not going to give the rest of it away. I'm just, you know, with this weight loss thing, eventually I will get there, you know, eventually. Because life has made me be persistent. Eventually I will conquer this demon. Um, uh, at the end of, of the first time I gave this talk yesterday, um, Aaron Fredericks came up to me at the end and gave me this beautiful quote by Auden that I want to read for you now. The ear tends to be lazy, craves the familiar, and is shocked by the unexpected. The eye, on the other hand, tends to be impatient, craves the novel, and is bored by repetition. Um, I love that. <laughs> um, and I want to thank you all for coming. And um, we're going to have questions now. And I want to just, I know that they need to take the projector for another session. So you guys can come on up and, and take that away. We're done with the slides. But I'd be more than happy to take any of your questions. Oh, and I have one other thing. I promised, I promised the good folks at Big Shed that I would mention um, that if you want more in-depth training on this kind of stuff, I'm going to be working with them in the Center for Documentary Studies in March at an intensive training. So there's information from, um, if you guys know Shay, there's, there's a, a card here if anybody wants to take one. Um, we're going to dive into this stuff a lot more in March. So um, questions, go ahead. Two questions, please. For, uh, by the way, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation, very moving and very well conceived. Strengths of, uh, thank you, could you please contrast the strengths of a sequence of stills versus uh, a motion picture? And secondly, contrast the use of ambience with uh, slideshows that omit ambience. Okay, so wait, the, the first question is still, like a, whoa, feedback, a sequence of stills versus like video or, or just, right. okay. I mean, I think, first of all, with a lot of the stuff, you know, the choices are aesthetic. And, um, you know, we're definitely doing more hybrid work these days at the times where we have video mixed with stills. And, you know, I think 
still photography, there's a, there's a real charm to it in, in terms of it's giving you, you it's, it's capturing moments in time. It's a little more reflective. You're not like keeping up with motion. Um, and I think, you know, it, it can certainly be slower paced and more ruminative. Um, at the same time, you know, some of the best new video that I, I've been seeing shot, you know, or Damon Winter is, is shooting amazing stuff for, I, sh I showed some of the stills from A Year at War. It's, it's an embed project with, with a, a, a unit in Afghanistan. He's shooting video that now looks like moving stills. It's, it's just stunning. It's like this beautifully composed, you know, there'll be like an overhead shot of like 300 troops on a C-30. And it looks like a still image, but then you see one of them blinks and they kind of all start moving. Um, and I think, I think there's really interesting work to be done in kind of that using the aesthetics, the slower aesthetics of something like an audio slideshow and putting very well crafted video into it. I think that's a whole new frontier. And your second question, remind me? Second question was what? use of ambience versus omission. You know, again, it, it, it's a stylistic choice. I think what Todd said about the walker, um, that you know, had no ambience in that piece. He said that it really put you inside the mind of the character, of Maggie. And, you know, I think ambience takes you to a place. It reminds you of being in a location with other ambience. And I think when you do that, it's, it's much more of like an internal kind of mental exercise. Um, yeah. You have uh, the advantage of having a whole staff of photographers. Yes. And many of us don't have that advantage. And I'm, I'm just wondering for, you know, whether we've had photographic training or not, whether there are some tips for uh, the, the person who's out in the field having to gather all of this material as a sole. Right. So the, the question is, if you, you're not a photographer and you, you're doing this all on your own, how do you do that? And, and I would recommend two things. And one is first to collaborate, to try. And if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't worked with a photographer, I mean, again, imagine the flip side. If a photographer is saying, well, I've never done audio before. Should I just go out and, and do it for an audio slideshow? Should I just go out and start recording? No, you'd probably say, no, you should get some training. You should have an expert kind of show you the ropes, maybe practice with, watch an audio producer in the field. I would recommend the same thing, um, that, that you should, you know, and a lot of places, I mean, I give talks like this to photographers all the time, and they ask me, where can I find the audio people to collaborate with? They are hungry to work with you. And, you know, I'm like, go to your local radio station and talk to air and look on the air list. But they really, like, there's a big hunger now for traditional journalists, print journalists, to learn multimedia skills. And I think in offering someone, to train someone in audio, they could, they will e easily offer to, to share with you some of their skills in, in visual journalism. So I think that's a great thing to do. Also practice. I mean, you know, again, think about how long it took you before you felt proficient in audio and at least invest some of that time in trying to practice before you go out and do a piece. Yes? I have two quick questions. One is about ambience, which I was really trying to figure out what that beautiful chimes at the beginning of the end, and, you know, when you place that, and then you also, I wasn't sure if you produced it, but you had drumming in the fistula, mm -hmm. fistula piece. Yep. And I'm trying to figure out how did you decide to put the drumming in there? What was the same as the So the question is a, a, sort of about ambience, like the chimes in the LA Times piece at the end, and the, sorry, stay away from that, and the, um, the drumming in the fistula piece. Well, you know, I use a lot of music, I tend to, when I produce, um, partly because I was trained at, at shows that use a lot of music. Um, you know, I mean, again, that's, it's always an artistic choice, and I, I felt like, because that piece had no ambience and no other recorded sound, it was just a, a, a sort of interview, 
um, that, that it would benefit by a different sonic element than just Denise and Beatrice talking in a room. So I thought that that just gave it an extra dimension. And it let me punctuate certain things. I mean, I'm very careful when I do audio edits. Even for that very first piece you guys saw about the China environment piece, I re-edited the music 12 times because I wanted, I wanted changes in the music to hit at moments that photos were hitting. You know, I, I condensed it so a certain movement in the music would come in when the photos changed from being kind of you know, darker to lighter or you're going to a more wide shot, like a landscape orientation, I would have the music sort of go to a different movement. Um, and, and so, you know, I think you just want to kind of use everything to its best effect without overusing it. And in terms of, you know, ambience, I think, I think it's the same way you can use it to punctuate a piece or to take you to, to a place. The other question, and I'm not sure if David asked this, but you, we didn't see video. No, we didn't see video. And that was for a reason. Video is hard and complex, and there's a lot out there, and there's a lot that's worth um, looking into, and it's certainly where a lot of multimedia is going. I didn't want to talk about it today because I think audio slideshows are like this brilliant um, training and transitional tool, and they work really well to teach people like us and people like print photographers how to get closer to sensibilities that will work well in video. And I found that, for example, Damon Winter is doing really interesting work in video, I think because he's become familiar with the audio slideshow format. Now, I, fair credit to Damon, he's a genius and would probably come up with something amazing no matter what he's doing. But I think the fact of like, you know, the slowness and the pace of an audio slideshow, he's comfortable with shooting, you know, a, a video image that's like a still, it looks like a still and that runs for a minute. That doesn't seem weird to him. Whereas, you know, our video journalists who come from a TV background at the times have a different visual sensibility. Um, yes? This kind of follows up her question. Um, in terms of the China slideshow, the music was so effective and affecting. And you're doing that kind of piece within a very traditional news organization, which, you know, for a better word, says at least that they're trying to be objective and not sort of create emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, just record it, and if emotion is elicited, that's great. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the tension of making a piece with music or without music, because sometimes that's an issue. Yeah. Um, within the confines of a huge news organization, which you know really is the old gray lady. Yeah. Um, the management hates it when they're called the old gray lady, by the way. They're like, we're in color since 1996, and we make all kinds of multimedia. Um, but, uh, so the question is about like how, when you, a piece like the, 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 the World Smokestack piece in China, you know, the Times has all these standards, um, lots of important standards that they've had for 100 years. And when we, we came in, we're like, we want to use music in a piece. They're like, huh? Mm, mm. And, uh, you know, literally, we, you know, we have a standards editor, and I, I've, you know, I had to make the case to edit quotes, to edit audio quotes when we got to the Times, because the Times is a policy, you know, they don't run ellipses in print, they don't shorten quotes at all, and the fact that we would do that in audio was a little mind-blowing. They're like, that's, you're betraying, that's, we can't do that, we can't have you edit audio quotes, and we're like, we, then we can't make work, I'm going home, you know? Um, but. In terms of, of convincing them, you know, we sort of developed a practice where we, we believe that like, when, we, when we do add music to a piece like that, and I don't think we would do a pure music audio slideshow anymore. That was like when they were trying to figure it out, and partly because we had this big format that only worked with audio. Now we have a big format where you don't need audio. Um, the, we make sure a number of people listen to it and sign off and don't feel that the music is adding a layer of emotion we don't feel comfortable with. I mean, I think most people feel sad about environmental damage, and so a little sad music might be okay. I mean, we're not, you know, and, and again, because nobody's objective, you know, whatever music you choose, you're bringing your own set to it. There's some music that I've, like, used that people are convinced sounds like, you know, a Rolling Stone song, and other people are like, no, it's just totally perfect, and other people are like, that's crazy. So we try and just get a consensus and make sure that enough people hear it that we're not in trouble. Yeah. Um, 
Um, so, uh, we're, I'm, okay, I'm curious if you could talk about how pieces like this play with print pieces that you guys run, because like we didn't see print pieces that may have run alongside mm -hmm. some of these, but I know, for example, like with the Benazir Budo piece, I mean, clearly the Times yeah. would have had a, a print story on that. Yep. And I feel like I've seen a lot of work, not necessarily in the Times, but in places it's very duplicative, because yes. there's, there's a certain pressure that's put on the audio and slideshow material to have it like do the same kind of work that the print piece does. So can you talk Yeah, about absolutely. This is, a, this is a huge thing, especially okay. in the beginning. Um, uh, so, okay, you, you go to a reporter, they've spent like two weeks working on a story, they're in love with the story, they're in love with their lead, they've already figured out how they want to think about the story, and they have zero interest in thinking about it in a different way for audio. None. So you say like, hey, let's write a script, and they write a script that uses their same lead, that uses the same quotes, that uses the same anecdotal information. We have really tried to not do that, and, and our maxim that we say all the time is we want the multimedia to be complementary, right? Um, we, we don't want it, uh, you know, to, we, we want to sort of bring something that you couldn't get in the other formats. So, you know, audio, I believe, does a great job at bringing emotion to the people. You know, it's like you can get the quality of someone's voice that you can never get in print. So I'm always striving to do that in an audio piece um, and giving it a reason for being. If, if it's repeating the print piece, I'm not interested in seeing it. I think print is a very great and effective format. I'm a big advocate of it, and a lot of times I think we shouldn't be doing audio in pieces because I think print works really well at doing a lot. Yeah. So as a follow-up, like, have, do you feel like you guys have gotten to the point yet where you could convince an editor this is a story that doesn't need a print component? Like, this is a better, this is going to be better served. Yeah, we're doing more and more yeah. of that. So the question is, you know, are, can we convince editors to not do a print component? Absolutely. And and um, there are times when we now do web-only features. Um, you know, and, and I was recently talking to our managing editor the other week, and, and she was saying the same thing, that, you know, she's really intrigued by kind of the standalone multimedia that we're doing more and more of. But it hasn't been our tradition, but we're certainly expanding in that way. Yes? You talked at the beginning about the embarrassing slideshow, which I may actually know where it came from, but um, <laughs> uh -oh. that, that used clicker pictures, yep. and I mean, there are probably people who use stock photos. Yeah. The, the point that I, that I got from that when you said that is it's almost like using a sound effects library. Exactly. Exactly the same. I mean, for every sin there is on the visual side, there's a sin on the audio side. And just think about how you would react if someone was like, I'm going to make, a, make a, a piece of journalism out of sound effects, you know? And yes, there's art. Like, I mean, this is different than, like, sound art. And that can happen. But that's, you know, I mean, that's certainly a line. There, there are shows that do that, but it's certainly not the time style. So, I mean... And, then, and just another quick thing is you talked about the, you know, don't be literal or whatever. But in the good ones, there were points where it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it worked. It just wasn't done... Excessive. It wasn't excessive, right. I mean, I think there are things, but, but even like in the Bikken piece, right, they talk about, you know, they sell CDs on the hood of a car, but you get something else from his line. He also says, for a buck thirty a piece, you know, and so that's something you don't get. So, so I think as long as it's not strictly that and you're like adding a layer, and I mean, there was a lot, if you just saw the photos, again, this is in contrast to the, the, air, the airport pilot in the trailer, like you got, if, imagine if you only saw the photos on the Bikken piece from Haiti. There's a lot you would have missed. Unlike the trailer piece, where you got everything from both the photos and, and the images. Yeah? I wonder what software you use to edit and where you look for music if it needs to be royalty-free. Yeah, sure. So what software do we use and where do I look for music if it needs to be royalty-free? We use SoundSlides for slideshows. Um, we use Pro Tools generally for um, all of our audio editing. I use Soundtrack Pro for a lot of noise reduction because we get a lot of bad tape. And um, we occasionally use Final Cut when we have video elements. Um, 
and, and that's it for software. In terms of music, there are two things that we do. One, we have access, because we can't use like anything like you do in radio and just report it. Um, we can't, you know, we have to have rights. So for the, uh, for the Zoe, the, the, the China Slideshow, I looked around to try and find an independent artist that both composed and performed their own music so that they had the full rights that they could grant us. And I, I happily found Zoe Keating, who was great. Um, you know, the other thing is we have access to a, a library. It's called APM. It's just like a thing we pay for at the times that our video department uses. It sucks most of the time, and the music's really cheesy. And so a lot of times I'll take the music and like slow it down and pitch shift it and, and mess with it to try and make it more interesting. And then um, also we'll sometimes compose stuff straight out of GarageBand if we're in a pinch or want something really custom. Yeah? What technique do you use to get the subjects to narrate their own story and also to do a little bit about So what techniques do we use to uh, get subjects to narrate their own stories? Is there a particular example you're thinking of, like the one in 8 million? Or? I'm doing something like a testimonial. I'll tell them to repeat the question. But he wasn't, or I don't know if he did the last time, I forgot. But it just seemed a lot more natural than that. Because um, sometimes you edit out the question, there's no context. Right. Right. I mean, I think this is an art that anyone who's ever done a non-narrated piece has to sort of struggle with kind of straight up in radio, too. Um, you know, sort of mirroring what you want and, and being as casual as you need the person to be back, it, it, you know, really helps a lot. And also making it clear to people, like, how to talk and stopping them and not being afraid of saying, hey, could you just say that again? And, and just actually stop Todd when I interviewed him. He was like, yeah, well, for this. And I said, Todd, could you say that again and say, for one in eight million, da 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 da. And I think we've all done that in radio, and it's, it's no different in multimedia. It's exactly the same skill. And I'm sorry, your second question? The statistics. Well, I can tell you in general that like, if you have a piece on Morning Edition, many more people will see it than your audio slideshow. And the Times generally doesn't like us to talk about specific st statistics on projects, um, but it is, the audience on the web is a lot smaller. And you know, we keep thinking about you know, the threshold for a piece is something that you would want to share yourself with your friends, because that's when pieces magnify and you know, the, I, don't, I don't like the words go viral, but you know, when they pick up a bigger audience is when people feel like it's worth sharing. So we try and use that as a threshold. Yeah. Can I ask you a specific question? The question of the history piece, when you got them talking about the voices, yep. of the, how you did that, and did you go through photographs? Did you show them the photographs, or did you use the photographs yeah. to interview at all? Yeah, so if I'm interviewing people for, and I have the photos first, and I have no audio, I usually will have the, uh, I'll look at the photos, and I'll prune out some big versions of them, and I'll be like, all right, tell me about this one. And they're like, oh, or, or, or I will know all the photos and kind of prompt them. I'm like, so there was, there was one girl, she was really small. And she's like, oh, yeah, Janeth. Oh, yeah, Janeth. And then they would start talking. Um, that was, we were sort of, for, I mean, they were reminiscing. They'd like gone on this trip like a month earlier, and they'd been traveling together. And they kind of came back, you know, to, to our headquarters and were, you know, it was, it was pretty easy to get them talking. But it's a very directed conversation in, in the same way that you might direct, um, you know, someone, you know, the six points you want to hit in your audio piece. You know, I look to the photos as a guide when I do that. But I think more importantly, and for this happens for every multimedia piece, the stuff comes in and I draw like a big Venn diagram. And there's a circle that is, this is the audio that I have, a circle that is, these are the photos that I have, and a circle that this is the story I want to tell. Frequently, that, the, where they overlap is very small. Um, and you can't tell the full story you want to tell. And you don't have photos for a chunk of the story. You don't have audio for another piece of the story. And there are a lot of ways to work around all that. But doing that kind of thought exercise in the be beginning can save you a lot of wasted time. What kind of diagram? Venn, V-E-N-N. -E -N. It's like circles that overlap with categories in the middle. Yes? Um, I'm just curious about time. 
time. You know, like uh, how quick the turnaround is, and you know, if, if you're doing a five-hour interview, uh, and yeah. then also doing a thousand photos, yeah. When do you live? <laughs> okay, so the question is, uh, at time, how do we produce these pieces and when do we find time to live and go home and have lives? Um, well, you know, it's different for every piece. I mean, the Baken piece, we probably turn that around in a week. Um, and we have to beg the desk not to run the print story and to wait until we're done frequently. And they've gotten better about agreeing to that and, and waiting for us. Um, it's hard if they think the journal's also working on something, then it just runs and we deal with it. Um, but. But with, um, you know, I, I mean, there's a variety, right? Like, there's certainly pieces where we only, we only we, if we know it's a fast turnaround, we don't get five hours of audio and a thousand photos. We just get less, and you just work faster. And I think, you know, any of you who've worked on Deadline kind of know the, the trade-offs you make to work quickly, and we just apply the same thing. Yeah, in the back. Um, kind of continuing on that question, I'm curious about workflow. Like, I'm, I'm working with a lot of collaborative environments, so appreciate nuances yeah. environments and environment, but I wonder if you could elaborate on Right. Okay. Yep. So, what is the workflow um, from the gestation of idea? Usually, so at the times we have this group of fifty web producers. Some of them work at night. It's an, uh, we have a lot of people who, um, and and they all work on different desks. And so their job is to be at every every meeting about stories, every turnaround meeting, every you know three times a day to know what's going on on say the foreign desk, right? So Jeff, my producer on the foreign desk, will go to these meetings and he'll identify stories that he thinks have strong multimedia potential because that's his job to watch out for that. And it could be something like, you know, this story should have a document viewer, this story should have a graphic or whatever. He's, he's looking for those opportunities to do something special on the web. And those people are kind of our, our, you know, right now, sometimes it comes from the reporter photographer if they have a strong interest, which is great, but more often it comes from the producer who's tasked with looking for those stories. And then that producer really serves, and this is what we've trained people like Jeff to do, um, as truly a producer. They, they make sure that we're going to get enough photos. They call up the photographer and talk about, could you send us, you know, like 300 more photos than you were planning on? And, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to FedEx a recorder to you and teach you how to use it over the phone. I mean, it's like everything soup to nuts. And then they get the material back and produce it. And usually a photo editor will be involved, depending on the desk, everybody's different, either at the beginning of the photo edit or at the end, and they'll come and kind of sign off on it and make suggestions. It really depends on how much they care. Um, and then someone like me, I will sort of top edit the audio and the whole package together. And that's, that's a big part of my job now on four different desks. So that's how we do it. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you weren't at, if you weren't at a news agent or organization and you were making slideshows for maybe a slower paced context, if there's things that you would do differently. So the question. That you've explained that might be different if you weren't. Right. So the question is, um, if I were a, in, in a place that, that has a slower paced context, not a news organization, would I be doing things the same way? Um, you know, I have to say, I think the rigors of a news organization really help you um, develop practices that are efficient. And, you know, I mean, I have to say, uh, when I was working at This American Life, uh, the, some of the tricks that Ira was able to teach us about how to structure pieces work very well because they're cranking out a show a week or, you know, a show every two weeks. And that makes me really fast capable producer. And I think in the same way, at the times, because we have deadlines, because we're responding to the news, our, you know, reflexes, instincts, workflow all gets faster. And I just, I don't know if, um, if I would want to work a different way, because I'm also kind of impatient. Um, I don't, I don't like spending months on a project. I don't like spending, you know, two years on a 10-minute piece. Like, I, I know that happens sometimes, but it's not my 
my particular methodology, I don't know how much you gain by many, 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 many cycles of editing if, if you feel confident in the three cycles that you did. But that's my personal preference. I know other people are really different. Yeah. Talking about statistics again, the prevailing wisdom on the internet is that it's pets, porn, and celebrities that get clicked on most. But the New York Times, one hopes, has a more dedicated, intelligent audience. Do you, have you haven't seen our porn audio slideshows? <laughs> you have any sense of, of particular topics or treatments that draw in your readers more often than others? Yes, um, I will tell you what our most popular audio slideshow is in the New York Times website. It's Bill Cunningham, our fashion photographer, who does who does on the street photography, and he's got a wonderful like antique voice and enthusiasm to kill to die for. Like he's just like, and her shoes were fantastic, you know. Like, and 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 um, they're by far the most popular thing on the site. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, you had mentioned in a way following up that this is, and I, it makes sense how brilliant a thing kind of practice this is for people who are used to working in one medium mm -hmm. kind of move toward video for instance which is or multi-mediums multi <laughs> but that well but that slideshows by themselves I mean, these are these are gorgeous artifacts um that i would probably not that i have i've never seen before and i probably yeah. wouldn't because i tend to mostly consume audio passively yep right when i'm when my eyes are occupied elsewhere yes and what's the kind of what aside from their aesthetic beauty and their mm -hmm. powerfulness and their usefulness as kind of professional development exercises for the organization as a whole, what's the reason to have them exist for the, for the audience? That's a great question. So the question is, what is the reason to have audio slideshows exist besides their purely aesthetic beauty or their, you know, a, a tool, a sort of a training and development tool? And I don't know. Um, because I think, you know, we are in a transitional time with media and I think a lot of things are pointing towards video. Um, there are advertising models that support video. There are not advertising models that support audio slideshows. Um, advertisers don't make commercials for them. They don't fit into it. I mean, videos can be shared, embedded, iPhone, you know, iPad, uh, mobile devices, right? And, and so I feel like, um, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, I think you described what they are, and that's what they are to me. Um, I don't think they're going to be the final format that's going to save journalism. So kind of lucky for us, we oh, like yeah. get in on, on using them so that yeah. we can get this training that's going to be so useful for whatever comes next. Sure. Yep. Totally. I just want to say, you probably should just take a couple more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So okay, great. Thanks. So, like, two more? Wait, you already asked one. Is someone, someone who didn't? Yes. I was just wondering if you talked to Liz Phelan about her process, especially, like, that first piece. Yeah. So just, it just seems... Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, she's amazing. I tried to talk to Liz. I sent her an email, and she didn't write me back. But I'm going to keep trying, because I, I really want to learn her tricks. <laughs> Anyone else? Did you want to? OK. Sure. I just was wondering how you feel about tech slides, if you use them only when you need to, or <coughs> if there's something that you choose. Yeah, we, they're a crutch. We use them when we need to. And we try to do more like text on photos now. Um, that's that we're trying to sort of develop in that direction. But you know, it's when we don't have the material else, elsewise. If it's quick, Dan. <laughs> yes, can you talk about what other trainings you have coming up? Oh, y yes. No, I, I mentioned that one, right. Um, no, because I'm not remembering the dates or locations because there's a lot of them. Um, but if anyone's curious for more, you can certainly email me. My email address is in the packet. I'm doing some, no, I don't want to say it because then the people are like, you forgot my training. I don't want to like say the one that I'm, I'm not going to remember right. Um, but I do stuff pretty frequently, and especially in New York. So thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for coming.